Good evening. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here tonight as we talk about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom. Uh, let me start, if I could, uh, with prayer. That'd be all right. Lord Jesus, we start talking about you and things like the kingdom, and I know for me I feel very inadequate to appropriately um, portray uh, this magnificent reality and uh, how you relate to it. And so I'd ask you in the midst of my weakness that you'd be strong and that your spirit would do great things to teach us tonight as we look at the scriptures together. I pray that each person here would gain a, a better understanding of your kingdom and how they relate to it and its impact on their lives today. And of course, importantly, how it fits into the, the one redemptive story that we're discussing would you open the tables up to each other as they discuss these things tonight? Use those discussions to stir their thinking, to stir their study, um, and to add to their understanding. So, Lord, you know we, we don't want this just to be a mental exercise. None of us here longs to be just smarter. Um, deep in our hearts, you've implanted this desire uh, to grow and to be more like you. So would you, by your Spirit, use tonight as a part of our sanctification, uh, each individually, I pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. We began this semester with these two thoughts that the Bible is one redemptive story rooted in the history rooted in history with Jesus Christ as the hero. That's the overarching really two-year big thought. Okay, then we said this this year because we're studying the New Testament is that the to understand the New Testament we must see the Old Testament and New Testaments as connected parts of this one story. But that was critical to understanding the New Testament. And last week, Neil gave us a great example of that as he took us through a very thorough presentation of Jesus, our Messiah, has come. Now, remembering what Neil covered, what did the Jews think the Messiah was going to do? Who said that? Free them from? Whose oppression? Roman oppression. Okay. Anything else? That's free them from something. What did they think he would free them to? To establish an earthly kingdom like whose kingdom? Like David's kingdom. That, that would they would... The prosperity, the expansion, the safety of that time of David was promised in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles that Neil pointed to last week in what was known as, as the, the Messianic kingdom or the Messianic age. 
That's what they were counting on, not just to be freed from the Romans, but to be freed into this time of prosperity, okay? Now, how was Jesus, how do you remember Jesus was identified as the Messiah? So, who say where louder? Was that over here? At the baptism, in what way was he identified as the Messiah at baptism? The, the dove, which was to parallel what did Neil tell us? How did that have anything to do with the Messiah, other than the Holy Spirit coming? There was something other significant that Neil brought out. The anointing, like David and David's anointing, the dove was the sign of the anointing as Messiah and King. Who else announced that Jesus was the Messiah? John the Baptist? Peter? Who else? How did God do that? This is my son. That's actually, you, you, if you were technical, you would say that's more the identification of his sonship than as of messiahship. And Neil made that point that he was first identified as the son, and then the dove came down as the Messiah. So it was a combination. He was the son and the Messiah both. But what, how else? Who else announced that he did? But did he? Now, Neil made the point that Jesus never really said he was the Messiah, and there was a reason for that. Now, I'm thinking of two other announcements. One was the, was the angel Gabriel told... The parents, and then... Yeah, so you could say both. And then also the angel told Mary, and then the... This, the uh, at the birth. Today, unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. Christ. That was Christos or Messiah in the, in the Greek, right? How we doing, Neil? You feeling pretty good? <laughs> no, no, no. Don't think that. Now, tonight... We're going to talk about Jesus proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of God. That's our title. And I have an idea that I want you to think about as you're going through this tonight. I want you to think about the importance of understanding the extent of the kingdom of God through the redemptive story. Let's say that again. I want you to think about why is it important to see the extent of the kingdom of God as it flows through the redemptive story. That's what I'm go we're going to be thinking about. Yes, Keith. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a sec. Okay, so I want to cover four things tonight. So I said the importance of seeing the kingdom of God 
as it extends through the, the one redemptive story, we're going to cover four things. We're going to cover the announcement the of the kingdom. We're going to cover the explanation of the kingdom. We're going to cover the validation of the kingdom and the misunderstanding of the kingdom. Those four things. As it relates to the importance of seeing the kingdom of God as it extends through the one redemptive story. Okay? Now, with that in mind, let's talk about the announcement. Now, if you remember in Mark, begins his gospel this way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then immediately after that, he talks about John the Baptist as the one who was preparing the way for the Lord. Then he goes into Jesus' baptism. And then in verse 14 and 15, he gives us this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you get some time to think about that. On your, on your table is your discussion guide, and there are sheets. I want you on one of the sheets as the table to write your answers to this question because I'm going to poll you. I'm going to come back and say, okay, table tw- 10, what was your answer? What is a kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? And what specifically does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of God is at hand? Now, this is not a fast exercise. I don't want 30 seconds. We're gonna, you're going to spend probably more time in your groups tonight than maybe you've ever spent because I want you wrestling with these things that we're going to be wrestling with tonight. What is a, the first thing is, what is a kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? And that you're going to help answer uh, Keith's question. And then what does Jesus mean the kingdom of God is at hand or near? Okay, you're on. Okay. Could I ask you to wrap up where you are right now, please? Put your table number on your sheet because I'm going to collect all the sheets from tonight. And I'm calling on tables. Table two, what is a kingdom? And, And speak into the microphone. What is a kingdom according to table two? We believe a kingdom uh, can be a country with a king or some type of authoritative government um, or a realm within which the king rules. Okay. Table four, what do you want to add to that? Would you turn that on, Beth? Yeah, anything you want to add to what is a kingdom? Please. You said it's a realm of which a king reigns over with boundaries and people. Okay. Anybody want to add? No, that's okay. Anybody want to add anything? Thank you, Sarah. That's okay. Anybody want to add to that? Yes, Jeff. Uh, Speak into the microphone, though, please. What generally a king establishes how people live. How do they behave? There's an expectation 
of many things, and it comes from the king. Okay. Any, anybody else want to add? Yes. No, no, no. This is for the tape so that people can hear it in the recording. Thank you. Here, Georgia. Let me A kingdom is perishable. Okay. Anything else? Yeah, JJ. Um, our group noted that kingdoms are often at war and um, battle other kingdoms. Um, there's a set of rules, and rulers don't usually intermingle with the subjects. Um, there's inherent value associated with the kingdom, whether that's like wealth that they have. Um, and there's protection inside the walls or boundaries of a kingdom for the subjects in exchange for their loyalty to the king. Okay. Yes, Beth, you have something else you want to add? Here. Can Yeah, thanks, Neil. Um, we also noted that um, it, there's often a requirement to be considered a part of the kingdom, that it, and it's often ethnic or a physical boundary where you live within it. So requirement is necessary to be part of it. Okay. I want each of you to have a very simple definition of a kingdom that you leave with tonight. I'm going to give you two answers. One's mine, one's Dallas Willard's. A kingdom is a realm of authority. Simply, a kingdom is a realm of authority. Dallas Willard puts it this way. A kingdom is the range of one's effective will. A kingdom is a range of one's effective will. You got real broad in your definitions of kingdom, like nations. But anytime you have a range of someone's will, that's, by Dallas Willard's definition, a kingdom. Yes. Effective. So what's the kingdom of God? Table nine, since you've got the mic, JJ, what's, a, what's the kingdom of God? Um, one of the things that we shared was that the kingdom, of, we didn't give you a fully defined, that we had some characteristics, um, but we said it's an even, even playing field in contrast to how we talked about the distance of power um, between the ruler and subjects. And then um, we said it's also the kingdom of God is based on loving submission to the king versus um, submission out of fear. What's the kingdom of God, Dale? Well, we went through some attributes as well. Uh, the kingdom of God has no borders or limits. Uh, it's currently of the heart. Um, the throne room is the individual believer's heart. Uh, it's firmly established. The gates of hell will not stand against it. It is sovereignly ruled and yet fluid. God is absolute. It's spiritual but uses human agency. It's both current and future. It is eternal. Its current feature is? And eternal. Okay. Ask, uh, let's see, this table. What's the kingdom of God? Please. Um, we said that it was spiritual, that it's in our heart, um, that it exists on earth and in heaven, 
and that is now and not yet or yet to come. Anybody want to add anything? <laughs> then I'm going to ask you to add. Let me have it. Where's my? What's the kingdom of God according to this table? I'm afraid we said some of the same things. It's, you it's know, okay. The king's dominion over not only earth but heaven and not subject to any earthly boundaries, but more of a spiritual dominion. Okay, great. Anybody else want to add anything? Simple definition of the kingdom of God. If, the ki- if a kingdom is the range of one effective's, one's effective will, what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. Simply, where he wants done is done. Simply. Now, much more to explain, but let's just examine that for a second. What is the range of God's effective will? Somebody read that passage, please, loudly. Just read it out loud where you sit. One more, Jen. So what is the range of God's effective will? It is complete and eternal. So if that's true, well, this is what Willard says. One last one. Jesus says, how much is the realm of his effective will? All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. There is no other authority in heaven and earth other than what I possess. My, the range of my effective will is the entire heavens and earth. That's the span of all creation. So to Michael's term, say that again. Can't get out of range. Now, what does it mean then for the kingdom of God to come near? Jen? I just read a lot. Um, we, you said, I'm sorry, the kingdom of God is at hand. Is that what we're talking about? Or near, either one. Um, well, we said it's the fulfillment of the promise. Um, and it was kind of like, we said, so watch, you know, like, watch this. Like, don't miss it. Um, 
kind of like get your stuff together. Are you ready? Okay. Um, what table haven't I? This table. What does it mean the kingdom of God is near? Jesus is here for everybody, Jews and Gentiles. Okay. Uh, let me have this, Patrick. What's, what's it mean? That, um, announcing the arrival um, of heavens, of a sp- nearness of a spiritual uh, reality of divine rule. Do you want me to repeat that? I kind of yes. murdered that. What's that word again? Uh, nearness. <laughs> Announcing the arrival or nearness of a symbol, spiritual. a spiritual reality of divine rule. Okay. Where, where'd that mic go? Is it over there? Oh, Jen's got it. Um, give it to this table. Oh, my, uh, yeah, no, no, this table. We haven't called them yet, I don't think. Sorry. What's what does it mean the kingdom of God is near, Brad? We said prepare yourself. Um, access to the eternal kingdom is at hand. Okay. Access to the eternal kingdom is at hand. Anybody want to add anything to that from their sheets? We're going to get to that in a minute. But what is what did he mean though when he said the kingdom of God is near. Okay. But he didn't say the new covenant is near. He said the kingdom of God is near. I'm not contradicting you. Why did he say the kingdom of God, which is eternal and complete, now is near? What did that mean? Yes. Okay. Yet what God has in mind is so much greater, but he's putting everybody on notice that, okay, the time has come for what you're looking for. Uh, but it's not what you're expecting. Okay. Beth, what were you going to add? It's, it seems that when I look at Uh, John the Baptist, like what Jeff just said, saying, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. That it's saying the work that has to be done to bring it into being is going to happen soon. To bring what into being? The kingdom of God. And so Jesus had to die. Okay, but do you see what you're saying? You're saying something had to come into being what we already said. What, Michael? Okay. I, I just see the incarnation as the kingdom being here. Okay. But it's also like it's, it's, it's two layered here because the kingdom of God. It's, it's like two layers of meaning here because the kingdom of God is here all along. Whoa, 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 what? What? The kingdom of God is here all the time. When did we say the kingdom of God existed? Forever, eternal. Okay, so how does it come near then? That's that's what I'm wanting you to wrestle with. There's something here to... Yeah, Beth? Is it like Jesus is here now and he is here now? No. No, but I, I don't mean that. I mean that jokingly. No, that, uh, uh, I don't want to just... I, I, th- this is... 
this is the tension I want you to feel tonight. That we don't have a very good grasp on what the kingdom of God is and how that applies to the redemptive story. I, if I heard you all and wasn't careful, I would think something is coming into being that wasn't in be, into being. And I don't think that's what you meant, but I also heard that, it could only, that it's only spiritual in nature. But I thought Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth, which is very physical. That's not just spiritual. So, but it illustrates to me what I think is often a, is a misunderstanding. Now, and the one redemptive story brings it into clarity. Let me explain. Near is at hand, or is near is one word. It's, it's a verb. It is a verb in the perfect tense, which is really important. In the Greek, the perfect tense is a past event with present effect. So he's not saying the kingdom of God is about to come. That He's saying the kingdom of God has already come and is now near to you. You see that? Part of that is because the kingdom of God has existed since the beginning of creation. That was the realm of his effective will. We'll get there in a moment. At hand means near, and you read a parable. It literally is a location idea. You read the parable, if you did your homework, in Luke 15. And if you remember in that parable, it talked about the older son, and it says this. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, it's exactly the same verb in a different tense. But the meaning is the same. It's to be close, but not in. He's not in the house, but he's close, and he can hear what's going on. It's like fall is at hand. It's not fall yet because it's Oh, no, it actually is. Sorry about that. We're past September 21, tells you. But it would be like if it was the first of September and we'd say, fall is near. It's not here yet, but it's close by, close at hand, location. Now, what do we mean by that then with regard to the one redemptive story? If you remember, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and he gave the man and the woman the blessing of to be fruitful and multiply, and then what did he say to do? Say it louder so I can hear. Subdue the earth. Rule and subdue. When God said that, by the way, to be made in his image, most importantly, above everything else, is to be his representative. We were to be his representative. And by saying, fill the earth, he is saying, when he says subdue and rule, there are to be all kinds of little kingdoms in my kingdom. 
every human being was to have a realm of their effective will. And in that realm, they were supposed to unearth the treasures of creation that were there and to bring them into conformity with the, with the heart of God in putting them there. And there was supposed to be all kinds of, of cooperation going on between all these different people filling the earth. They were to rule and reign over creation and bring out these treasures. Rich cooperation. No greed, no fear, no power struggles, just cooperation among the many kingdoms within his kingdom. You see, the, you see what I'm saying? They each had a realm of their effective will, a span of that. And they were to do that in cooperation with the king. In relationship with the king, they were to then fulfill this mission of, of these little kingdoms, right? You see that? So the music people were to express their effective will into the music world, and music would come out. And the artists were supposed to express their effective will into forming paint and art. And then somebody was actually going to make write something, and they would make music go with a play, and we'd call it an opera or a musical or whatever. But there's the cooperation. They're working together to unearth all that God placed in creation. Remember again we said, when there's no music, there's no literature, there's no art, there's no industry in the garden. It's all, but it's all laying there waiting to be discovered. But it required cooperation among the kingdoms. That's what that word cooperation, I want to see you get really well. We, call, we even say there was competition because there was a striving with each other in those kingdoms to better enhance what they were unveiling. Okay? Then what happened? We said, what? We don't want that king. We want our own kingdom, but we don't want that king. And God said, okay, that's what you want. I give it to you. Now, what happens is he tells them, instead of this being joy-filled, which it was, and very satisfying, which it was, when God was there, he says, now one thing's going to happen. You're going to, by the sweat of your bow, brow, work. You're going to have failure, thorns and thistles. And from dust you came to dust you term, it will seem meaningless. You want your little kingdom without me, and that's what happens. In your little kingdom, Bob, you now feel you're inadequate. You can't, all you do is produce failure. And when you get done at the end of the day, it seems like 
your life didn't matter at all. And so now, instead of cooperation, you start to, to be threatened by these other little kingdoms. And now power struggles begin, and greed, and envy, and hatred, and all the wars of all the kingdoms that since then were birthed because we did not trust the goodness of the king. And we went from striving with to striving against each other in our little kingdoms. What does it mean then that the kingdom of God is coming close or near? It does not mean that God started to bring his kingdom into existence through Jesus Christ's presence on earth. It means, by the way, that the social and political realm, along with the individual human heart, was the only place in all of creation where the kingdom of God or his effective will is currently permitted to be absent after the fall. We got disconnected from God's kingdom in the sense of it being in our hearts. Now, it did not invalidate the kingdom of God because if it did, who's a bigger king? We are. It does not invalidate God's effective will over all of creation, including Bob Schindler and you, even if I'm in rebellion. But this is what happens at the fall. We get disconnected in our hearts, in our souls, from the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is saying when he says this, uh, by the way, it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that he started bringing the kingdom into existence. I said that already. And, and again, Willard said, his, it do, or that his kingdom is something confined to our hearts. See, some of you said, and I'm not going to point, some of you said the kingdom of God is in my heart. That, that's true, but that's limiting if that's what you think the only place the kingdom of God is. The kingdom of God spreads over the whole entire universe. When Jesus is saying that, so it's, it goes on to say, it's not some matter of inner attitude, faith that might be totally disconnected from the public and visible world. The kingdom of God always pervades and governs the whole of the physical universe. Do you see that? But what was happening is this. Well, let me go back. What was happening is a new accessibility of the kingdom is now being available to humans. Our the, the kingdom is close for us to be able to enter into it again. What's that? Yes. But it's important to, to see the tension of the broader kingdom, and then when Jesus is saying, it's, this is the one redemptive story. The climax is happening, folks. The promised redemption is about to take place. That's what he's saying. 
It's near. It's close. I promise that. A long time ago, and it's coming. And it's near. And you have a chance to enter into it like the older brother had a chance to enter into the house. So when you see that, you go, oh, I get it. It's not that it wasn't around before because it's spread for all of eternity over all of creation, over every human being. But our opportunity to align our hearts with the kingdom is now being about to be offered. Both. I would say. And so in the light of that reality, what does Jesus say to do? JJ, what does Jesus say to do? Repent and believe the good news. Now, People, and from my perspective, do not understand what the word repent means. People usually misunderstand that to mean I've got to be sad, I've got to be crying, I've got to be remorseful, and I've got to be committed to changing my life into something different. And that is not what repentance means. Repentance simply is to change your mind. Metanoia. I've said that to this group before. I'll keep saying it because I don't think we get it. Change your mind. And what did those people need to change their minds about? Think about that. What's the answer? What did they need to change their minds about? Say that again. Who was God? What else? What can't we do in the light of this? Repent. He doesn't say repent of your sin. He says the kingdom of God is near. Repent. Change your mind about what? What did he just say? The kingdom of God. Change your mind about the kingdom of God. And what does he want them to believe? Maybe, but I think more, what does he want them to believe about the kingdom of God? Maybe close. She said that you could be in it because it's near. What else? Okay. Why did we leave the kingdom? I totally agree with you. Why did we leave? Beth, go ahead. Everybody hear what she said? He's saying, come back. Come back. I have a good plan for your life. You rejected it. It's back. It's near. Believe. This is where life can really be found. Now, 
they also needed to change their mind about what the kingdom was involved with. And so this is where Jesus went to the explanation. We talked about the announcement of the kingdom. Now let's talk about the explanation of the kingdom. Jesus used teaching and parables to explain the kingdom. Now this was in the book that we get, the, the study book, where they, they talk about parables. Parables are not moralistic studies, stories like Aesop's fables. They are not earthly metaphors to illustrate spiritual truths. Parables are dramatic confrontations. They produce a change in the here. Jesus' parables usually have a binary structure. There are two different people, two different ways, or two contrasting pictures. However, there is only one desired response. The parables of Jesus consistently invite the hearers to repent and believe in him. At the end of every parable, we should always ask two questions. Who is Jesus revealed to be in this parable, and what is required of us in the response? I partially agree with that. But I think they miss the most important piece of the parables. And I quote Jesus when I say that. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, the, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but not to them. The parables were given to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God, which implies something, that you and I, by natural understanding will never get the kingdom of God. We'll never figure it out on our own. And that's why he said, I'm giving you, disciples, the secrets. That's why several of the parables he gives, the, in the, 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 the authors give when Jesus explained what the parable meant. And so I think there's two other questions you ought to ask every time you go to a parable. And that is, what's the secret that's being revealed here? The other one is, where do I fit in the parable? You see, Luke 15, which you looked at, reveals a secret. And you know what the secret is of Luke 15? That people are made of two kinds, that the world is made of two kinds of people. One's represented by the lost son, the younger son, one's represented by the older son. And the secret that Jesus is revealing there is both are lost. Both are disconnected from the Father. And the Father desires a deep relationship with both. That's the secret in that parable. The parable of the sower and the soils, which you know where the sower goes out and he sows among, first on the, on the hard-packed soil and then on the, then the thorns. No, I'm sorry. Hard-packed, then the rocks, and then the thorns, and then the good soil. What's the secret? Some people say, well, 25% of the, of the world's going to get saved. That's not the secret. The scriptures tell us in, in uh, Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Only God understands the heart. The secret of the parable there is that you can know what the status of someone's heart is by their response to the word. 
That's what, the, that's what the secret of the parable of the soils is. You can know the status of someone's heart by their response to the word. You can know the status of your own heart by the status by your response to the word. Every secret, I mean, every parable has insight into the kingdom of God that none of us will ever figure out on our own. And so the parables are worth your study if you've never spent time in them. Spend time in the parables asking those questions. Who's Jesus? Those are good questions. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. What's my response? But more importantly, what is the secret about the kingdom that Jesus is revealing here? Now, the second thing that Jesus gave was his teaching. He taught on the kingdom. And you read Matthew 5 through 7. Now, at your tables, you discuss these questions and write your answers down because I'm going to pull those again. Let's go ahead and, uh, Neil, ask that table back there. Beth, what role, Beth, your table. Beth, you're on. Betsy, what role does the Sermon on the Mount have in the life of a Christian today? What does your table say? Well, we, so we, we feel like it was critical. Put it we, close. We feel like it was critical for in the life of a believer today because it counteracts like the way of the world, which okay. says that we have to elevate ourselves. We have to strive, look out for number one. Um, we have put ourselves in charge. And so we have to um, work to keep it that way. Okay. All right. Go to this table here, Neil, if you don't mind. And where's the other microphone? Oh, thanks, Herb. What your what did your table say? Okay, um, so we said that uh, Jesus is really speaking to like eternal struggles um, or timeless, really like timeless struggles. That even though he's speaking to a first century audience, it's still applicable for us today. That these are still things that we come up against or struggle with. Um, and then, yeah, this is also like kind of a structure or like guidelines, really kind of a revisitation of the law, even where Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, then he kind of goes to like reiterate some of the things that we find in the law. But really it's uh, like a guideline for how he wants his people in the kingdom to treat each other, like uh, the way that he, the things he wants them to value or not value or mm. um, yeah, just ways of behavior and things like that. Okay, good. Yes, JJ. Which question are we answering? Four. What what role does a Sermon on the Mount play have in the life of a Christian today? Yeah, um, one of the things that came up at our table, Lindy actually said, what if we actually spent a year trying to read through the Sermon on the Mount and actually live out everything that we read there? Um, what a different life we would probably have if that were our true focus um, because it is so antithetical to everything that we see in our, it's, we live in a very self-oriented world, and this is a very mm. others-oriented and kingdom-oriented teaching. Um, yeah. Yeah, Jeff. <coughs> we were talking about how the Sermon on the Mount uh, provides for us, how then shall we live? There's mm -hmm. some answers to that question as to how we live each day. How do we do our jobs? How do we conduct our relationships and our family? We do it in a way that is part of God's 
wish for us and his will for us, and it's expressed in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay. Um, anybody else want to add anything? The reason I ask the question is, over the history of Christianity, um, we've struggled with what to do with the Sermon on the Mount. If you read historically, there have been, there have been scholars that have said you, you don't even pay attention to it because it's intertestamental, basically, in between the Old and the New Covenant. So it's really a part of the law. We should abandon it. Others, others have robbed it for the social gospel and said it's supposed to advance the social issues of the day. Some would say this is the way to get into the kingdom all of which I think are incorrect, personally. Um, I want you to think for a moment just about the first few verses. And I want you to try to remember, first of all, who was he speaking to? He was speaking specifically not to the crowds at this point. He was speaking to his followers, it says. And he says these words, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How do you think they would feel at that moment? Because they're, the, they're, the, they're not the, so, the religious elite. This is, this is an upside-down view of what God values to the world at that day. That's why it's been called the upside-down kingdom. It doesn't fit because people think the kingdom of God is where I just tick God at the top of all the current power stru structures. No, the kingdom of God is antithetical to the power structures of our world. It's for the meek. It's for the poor. It's for the mourners. This is who the kingdom of God is for. And it was designed to be inviting of those kind of people. It was to be good news to those people. That's what it is. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. Now, I would encourage you to use, if you're going to use, the Sermon on the Mount in a way that I think would really please Jesus, and that is to hold it up as the mirror that it is of the way your and my values don't match up with the kingdom ones. Because he goes on to talk about not only the values, but what is our relationship with the law? And he lifts the bar. I had a friend of mine a number of years ago. Um, he was a, a guy that I was reaching out to for several years. He grew up in a Jewish family, and then he became a Buddhist. And I encouraged him at one point to, to had he ever studied Jesus? Because all the great religions have studied Jesus. And he said, no, I never have. I said, well, how about, would you be willing to do that? And he said, okay. So somebody had asked, somebody else had actually given him the, um, the prodigal, um, the pro, not the prodigal God, this is before that, this is the one by Henry Nowen, the prodigal son, yes, yeah, with the Renoir, yeah, yeah. He gave him that and he read it. So I said, well, let's start with Luke 15. So we did that. I said, have you ever studied the Sermon on the Mount? No, that's the most famous sermon that Jesus ever 
spoke, yeah. And then he looked at me and he said this before we looked at it. He said, I really think that Jesus came to convince people that they were not as big as sinners as they think they are. Now, that's a Buddhist thought. And then we read the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said that people long ago do not murder and anyone murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that if you're angry, you're subject to judgment. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Do you think Jesus, I, I looked at him, I said, Bill, do you think Jesus is lowering the bar on sin or raising the bar? He said, I think I was wrong. I think he was raising the bar. I said, I think that's exactly right. Because mourning is a, he said, this is who the kingdom of God is for. What do we mourn about? That we're not there yet. We're still so much living in that old way. But he says, you're going to be comforted, Bob, in your mourning. It's a beautiful promise. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, Bob. The righteousness that doesn't throw out any of the law, it upholds it. And it says it treats sin that if, you, if you're committing sin, you'd cut your hand off. Now, obviously, nobody really understood that. Nobody thought that was literal or all the disciples would have been blind, right? I mean, it's metaphorical. It's how do you treat sin? And, man, I've sad at how casual I can get about it. That's what he wants out of us. Repentance is the ongoing attitude toward the kingdom of God. That word repent is not one time. Martin Luther said, when Jesus announced repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He willed a lifetime of repentance. Our constant attitude should be one of, I need to turn away from what I'm still believing isn't gonna give me is gonna give me life, and it's not the kingdom. Now there's much more to do with the sermon on that. We have not, not enough time to do that tonight. But it, it, it was an expression of the values of the kingdom. It was never designed to be a way into the kingdom. It was to explain what the kingdom is like and what the attitudes of those in the kingdom have. And he ends with how you get in the kingdom. Enter by the narrow gate. Now, he's going to reveal the narrow gate later, but see, we're only in the announcement of the kingdom. Now, quickly, done the announcement, done the explanation, let's talk about the validation. Jesus validated this announcement and the coming of the kingdom in three ways. He did healings, he'd cast out demons. And he had prophetic signs. Prophetic sign would be like um, turning water to wine or stilling the, the waves of the sea. Those, were, those are tied directly to Old Testament prophecies. What they were to do was to show people that the kingdom of God in its flourishing fullness was coming back. And so healings were never designed to alleviate suffering. 
They were des- because he let lots of people go unhealed. They were designed to show what the flourishing of the kingdom was supposed to look like. The casting out of demons is, I think, significant because not only is this world called the kingdom of men, it's also called, do you know what Jesus referred to this world as? The prince of this world. The realm of this world was Satan's. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And Jesus is clarifying again, let your king, this idea of his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it says to pray. Pray that. Pray that the kingdom now would come like it's, and it would be done like it's done in heaven with willful, joyful submission rather than stingy, resistant submission. Because again, the kingdom cannot be resisted, right? Man, Willard said again, you have to keep that perspective that the kingdom is always clearly established without resistance or other that, otherwise that person's bigger than God. Now, the last thing that I want to talk about tonight is the misunderstanding. I want you in your tables to wrestle with these ideas. How did the Jews and even the disciples misunderstand the announcement of the kingdom? What was the result of their misunderstanding? And how might we misunderstand the kingdom today? And what might be the result? Okay? And I'll poll you on that. At your tables, go for it. And write your answers, please. Okay, could I have your attention? Uh, First of all, I just want to thank you all for uh, the joy that it gives me to listen to the buzz. It just, I love to hear it. And I hope that the conversation was engaging as it sounds, was as engaging as it sounds. Um, The body of Christ feeding each other is a really important uh, dynamic for the local church. So thank you for being willing to do that. Now, how might we under, misunderstand the kingdom of God? And I'm just going to ask you to, don't, we're not worried about the microphone, just how might we misunderstand the kingdom of God today? You just need to say some things. Think that, that the kingdom of God is rules to follow for what end? Self-justification. To get into the kingdom. Uh, that's, the, that's, in my opinion, the, 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 the wide gate. The narrow gate is that there is nothing I can actually do to deserve the kingdom. I come poor in spirit. I have nothing to bring to you, God. Nothing except my poverty. That's all I bring. The poor in spirit of that verse is abject, complete, absolute, nothing poverty. That's who the kingdom of God is for. Okay? What else would be a misunderstanding? Is 
close, but it's not clear yet. Okay. So we, we use very goodly, and we use that. Somebody said this earlier. I, I can't remember. The now, but not yet. And I'll talk about that in a minute. Great thought. Anybody else? We would think it's not a relationship. Is it? We think it's rules, okay? And not a, we misunderstand that it's really about a relationship, okay? Yeah, Michael. We could expect the kingdom to make sense, and it does. Is that kind of what I'm, you're? It's up. It doesn't. It's upside down to our life. Yeah, mystical. Okay, good. What else? Any, what other thoughts? Thank you, Michael. Great. Uh huh. Okay, that's a great. Did everybody hear that? You could focus only on the second coming and kind of forget about the kingdom of God now. Okay, so let, let me give you. You know, here's the, the three diagrams I've kind of tried to help you understand tonight on the flow of the redemptive story and where the kingdom of God fits. Little kingdoms, broken kingdoms, trying to get to little kingdoms again in the present. In redemption. There is some kingdom going on now, but it's not yet. So here's the two big mistakes that I think we make. We say it's only not yet. And so we completely forget about the movement of the kingdom of God in this world now through the little kingdom that God has for each one of you right now. Because he wants his reign to be established, his rule to be established in your little kingdom right now. But if we just say, oh, well, it's second coming, it's not yet. All I care about is getting people into heaven. I don't care about extending his rule now. Or I can say it's all now. It's just now. And you know where that, there are people that believe that all disease is going to be conquered right now. All sickness, all disease, every, all suffering is, a, is an unbelief. Because the kingdom of God is now. That's not what the scriptures say. The kingdom is now, but not yet. Now, and not yet, be another way to say it. Another way, yeah. You see, the king, but we could also misunderstand that the kingdom is outside. That's one of the things the Jews thought. The Jews thought it should go outside. It should be seen, visible. It should be overthrowing governments. And Jesus said, no, it's inward. 
It's inside. But it doesn't stop there. It spreads outward. As people's hearts are changed and they walk in the brokenness of the combination of these and they're repenting and and they're actually embracing this idea that God has placed me in this place to be the little kingdom under his rule and I might actually redeem that sphere of the world where the kingdom of God now is spreading like yeast. That's one of his parables, by the way. So, this is supposed to be good news, men and women. Good news. The kingdom of God is near. That's supposed to be good news. Because Jesus is offering us the accessibility to the kingdom in our hearts and through us to the world. I think we finally have to say that Jesus' enduring relevance is based on his historically proven ability to speak, to heal, to empower the individual human condition. He matters because of what he brought and what he still brings to ordinary human beings like me living their ordinary lives, coping daily with their surroundings. And he promises wholeness in the kingdom. This is the good news, men and women. This is the good news. May we all repent and believe. And so do you see? How important it is to understand the extension of the kingdom in the redemptive story to experience it. We've got to see accurately that so that we don't either, so we experience it. Another way to say it is this way. When we don't understand how the kingdom of God extends through the redemptive history, we are in danger of missing it. So what do you do about that? I got a couple of ideas for you to close. First of all, what what was the solution for the disciples' misunderstanding? Yeah, they thought the kingdom was coming now. Um, They were discouraged after Jesus died. They even thought so much that it was now that they argued about it on the night before he died about who was going to sit on what positions of authority in his kingdom. What was the solution? Luke 24 tells us the solution. It took divine revelation from Jesus to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, but just as much to the 12 or the 11 that sat in the upper room and the rest of them. It took Jesus to explain the kingdom to them. And so men and women, we need the same explanation. We need to appeal to our Savior. Please, 
by your Holy Spirit, give us an understanding of the kingdom. And I think secondly, that's the we can repent, we can repent and we can confess our ongoing insurrection. Because men and women, I can tell you, at least from my perspective, I still walk very often in that model where I want to be king because I don't believe this model or this model is really my good. And I got to confess it. And then I pray, Jesus, would you change me so that I want your will to come, your kingdom to come, and your will to be done in my life and through my life. I repent, I believe, I confess, and in that brokenness, Jesus promises that is where the kingdom of God is. Let's pray. why you would value in rebellious, broken, foolish people like me is the marvel of your glory. We're going to study in the weeks to come what all you did to change our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. What all you did to open our minds to your Holy Spirit what all you did to make it possible for us to come and enter into this incredible kingdom where you turn ordinary lives into lives of the king. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.